From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. For Treasurer Jim Chalmers, Labor's first 100 days, which the government celebrated this week, have been non-stop activity. Chalmers has major challenges in framing the October budget, given a difficult economic outlook. The international prospects are uncertain and cost of living pressures in Australia are becoming more acute. Most immediately, Chalmers has a central role at this week's Jobs and Skills Summit, which runs through Thursday and Friday. The summit will see wish lists from the multiple stakeholders attending, and Chalmers, in the short or medium term, is going to have to disappoint many of them. Money is tight. More generally, Anthony Albanese and his government want the summit to focus as much as possible on cooperation and consensus between business, unions and civil society groups. The biggest test will be how much agreement can be found on the always knotty issues in industrial relations. The Treasurer joins us today to talk about the summit and the budget. Jim Chalmers, the unions and at least some of the employer representatives seem a good distance apart on the bargaining system. Do you think consensus can be reached on a set of industrial relations changes? Well, I think there's agreement already that the enterprise bargaining system isn't working as we want it to. And there are different reasons why people have come to that view. Uh, But in an overarching sense, and certainly from our point of view, it's not delivered that strong, sustainable, responsible wages growth that we want to see. So I think in the broadest sense, there's an agreement that we can do better. And I've actually been really heartened by the way that the unions and the employer groups have genuinely engaged in some of these issues. There hasn't been the kind of old style clash of armies uh, around industrial relations. And we find that very uh, encouraging, very heartening. Tony Burke appears to have all but given the nod to multi-employer bargaining. But in terms of outcomes, how big a difference would a move to that sector bargaining make to the rate of wage growth, do you think? Is there any modelling on this? Well, it depends how it's applied. And, you know, we want to see a discussion of multi-employer bargaining at the summit. You know, if there's an idea which is about getting wages growing again after a decade of stagnation, then we want to hear it and we want it to be teased out at the summit. That is in many ways one of the points of having the summit uh, in the first place. And so there are different models for multi-employer bargaining and we'll hear all of them, no doubt, over the next couple of days and how it's applied will determine what it means for wages. But I think when it comes to wages, stagnant wages have probably been the defining problem in the economy now for the best part of a decade and I don't want to get partisan about our predecessors and the policy that they pursued of deliberate wage suppression and stagnation but that's where we are right now Uh, and so if you want to get wages moving again you've got to fix bargaining which is what we're talking about now you've got to train people for higher skilled opportunities you've got to fix childcare so newer parents especially mums can work more and earn more if they want to You've got to get all of these pieces right at the same time. And that's why the summit's been so useful as an organising principle for the government and for the broader community, because it recognises that there's not one switch that we can flick to get wages growing again. We need to move on all fronts simultaneously, and that's what we'll do. Let me put this another way. What rate of wages growth is desirable in your view? Well, it... (laughs) 
it depends on how much productivity growth you can get. You know, productivity growth, you know, it gets lost in the kind of eggheadedness of economic jargon. Uh, but productivity is really about investing in people sufficiently that they can adapt and adopt technology in a way that benefits the workplace and the broader economy beyond that as well. So if you can get productivity growing again, and it's been flat for too long, uh, and if you get some of that wages growth via bargaining, skilling up, childcare, all of these other ways, then there's no reason why we can't have much stronger, but yet still, still sustainable wages growth. I'm reluctant to do what the Reserve Bank and others have done, which is to try and put a figure on it, about 3.5% in their estimation, which is the middle point of inflation targeting at 2.5% plus a percentage point of productivity. Uh, I would like to get productivity growing again to make our economy more competitive at the same time as we get wages growing again. And on top of that, we've got this huge inflation challenge right now, which is primarily but not exclusively given to us by the rest of the world. And that matters in this equation too, because real wages are going backwards. So we need to work where we can to moderate inflation. We need to get wages growing again. And we can find a really good balance point where people who are working hard can actually get ahead again in this economy. Well, on that inflation problem, you've indicated you think inflation will peak at around seven and three quarters percent by the end of the year. But are you now optimistic that we will see it peaking at the end of the year, that it won't continue growing into next calendar year, and that that will be the high point, 7.75? Well, it's notoriously hard to peg, but the Treasury's uh, estimation, their modelling, their forecasts, say that uh, inflation, as you say, will hit about th seven and three quarters by the end of the year and then start to moderate and then get to more normal levels in 2024. That's still seen. current? That's still current, yeah. And I'll, the next opportunity to update that will be in the October budget, and I'll do that. Uh, we've been heartened by the fact that uh, inflation in the US and the UK, which is extremely high, uh, we got a reasonable number in the US uh, not that long ago. The UK has got a bit further to go, but we'll be look, watching closely what happens on the international scene because so much of this is brought to us from overseas. Uh, and we will update our forecast if we need to, but nothing has substantially changed to change my view about those Treasury forecasts. So in bringing down inflation, that tends to push up unemployment, right? Do you think unemployment will rise substantially in this fight against inflation or only a little? Well, not if we get all the settings right. And by we, I mean there's an important role for the Reserve Bank taking their decisions independently to balance their full employment objective with their inflation targeting objective. That's the, the hard task that they have before them. Uh, the Americans and the Brits and others are managing a similar set of circumstances uh, in a way that most people expect uh, the US economy to be going backwards. And so we have to do better than that uh, broadly when it comes to our, our policy settings. Uh, our expectations in the Treasury forecast is that um, unemployment will tick up a little bit, but not a lot. What do you mean by a little bit? Uh, well, the forecast that I released in the ministerial statement had it edging up around 4% rather than 3.4 at the moment. Uh, that is partly a story about interest rates, but it's also a story about the global conditions, which are extremely tricky right now, and that's why I keep coming back to them. Uh, our job, our goal, our aspiration, our objective, the point of the job summit, uh, and the point of our economic policy is to try and keep unemployment as low as we can, 
to get wages growing at the same time. And that's why our focus is on all of these areas we've been talking about. Now, we do seem to have some agreement about more permanent migration. And there's been talk of the cap going from 160,000 to around 200,000. Do you have any hard data on the outcome of that? What benefit would flow to the economy from, say, 200,000? Well, a couple of things about that. I mean, I don't want to preempt the outcome of the summit, of course, but I think there is a broad appetite uh, for uh, a lift in our migration intake. It needs to be sensible. It needs to not be a substitute for training local people for opportunities. But we've got these skills and labour shortages running rampant through our economy, particularly in some parts of Australia and some parts of our economy. And so we need to move on this front as well as the other fronts simultaneously not as a substitute for doing something meaningful on skills and training, uh, but in addition to doing that. So I'm confident that we'll get to a sensible landing point. The economic benefits there are pretty obvious. You know, I do almost every day, I do some kind of consultation with business groups around Australia and with regional communities and with others, and people are screaming out for more workers, skilled workers, but also workers more broadly. And so we've got to get a landing here. The benefits for the economy will be obvious. There's a lot of businesses that are only operating at half pace or half time because they can't find the workers that they need. If we can take that handbrake off, uh, then we will grow the economy more than otherwise. And what about the immediate problems that uh, an increase in migration undoubtedly bring in terms of uh, the strains on the health system, yeah. on housing, so on, especially as things are at the moment? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, uh, migration brings immense benefits to our economy, not just our labour market, yeah, but more exactly. broadly as well. Point taken, I think that's broadly agreed. But yes, it does throw up some other pressures too. And that's why I've been speaking a lot the last week or so about housing, trying to work with the super funds and other big investors to see where we can uh, incentivise some more investment in housing. I did a forum in Rockhampton a couple of weeks ago where every business around there said we've got really around the table there are thousands of vacancies in a great Queensland town in great industries, big employer industries with secure, well-paid jobs, but they needed to find somewhere to put people in order to attract them. And so that message has been heard loud and clear by us. That's why we've got our own. We've got some existing policies on housing, but we'll need to do more. And I'll work with the super funds and others to make that possible. But of course, you've got a time problem here. You need the houses now if migrants are coming in more numbers. And yet, if you're talking about investment, that takes a while. We better get cracking then. All right. Now, you talk about training locals. And uh, of course, there was a statement from the ACTU and business groups the other day uh, agreeing on the need to do this. And one tangible point they made was they think there should be more money put into apprenticeships generally, but also to pay apprentices more and employers. Are you up for any more money? Well, I'm certainly up for more um, intelligent, responsive investment in the skills system. You know, we've got already got big commitments of, you know, billions of dollars in skills and education and we've got to work out how's that best timed how is it best set up so that we're dealing particularly with the skill shortages as they evolve in the economy and so there are better ways we can do even deliver our existing policies uh, the prime minister will be talking with the premiers uh, this week on wednesday this week uh, about 
skills and training and some of the things we might be able to advance in ahead of the Jobs and Skills Summit. And I've been working closely with Brendan O'Connor to see what else we might be able to do. The skills and training system needs to change. It hasn't been responsive enough. It's not churning out the graduates that we need to see in the areas that we need to see them. Brendan's been working around the clock with our support to see what we can do better. So do you agree with this point that apprentices can't adequately live on what they're paid and more government helps? Well, that's one of the issues, but it's not been the issue that we've been primarily focused on. We've been primarily focused on trying to work out where are the genuine shortages and how quickly can we train people for those opportunities. If you take a step back, well, there's two, two ways to take a step back here, and I'll try and be try and be brief because I'm passionate about this. You mentioned the ACTU employer groups thing about skills. One of the most heartening things about this whole process is it's not a government sitting there refereeing competing claims. It's a lot of these groups, union employer groups working together and then coming to us with something that they've worked out. That is That has been tremendous. That has been so uh, heartening and encouraging to, to see that. And the second way to think about all of this is when you've got unemployment at 3.4%, You've got a tight labour market, you've got some other things going for us in the economy, but you've got these big challenges. Our overarching task, our reason for being as a Labor government, the reason I'm a Member of Parliament representing Logan City in Queensland, is because we need to get much better at, at not just creating opportunities, but making sure that more people from more postcodes can actually access those opportunities. We've got a big willing workforce out there if we're prepared to do the work to skill them up and train them up and hook them up with these opportunities that's primarily a role for the skills and training system and that's why it will be one of the biggest focuses of the summit. It seems to me at this summit as treasurer you have two tasks one is promoting paths to consensus and agreements but the other is saying no to stakeholders on their wish lists. How do you balance those? Yeah, well, to be honest with you, Michelle, um, there's been less, less of the latter than I anticipated. You know, to be frank about it, I thought some a month or two ago, I thought that there was a risk that I'd just be sent a whole bunch of invoices for big, expensive policy ideas and asked to sort it out. What's happened has been something very different. People recognise that the budget's heaving with a trillion dollars in debt and that we can't fund everything that we want to fund, and so they're trying to work out uh, how do we make progress without imposing you know, massive additional strain on a budget which is already awash uh, with red ink? And so there's been less of the saying no and there's been more facilitating really productive conversations. And what that tells me is that the, the tone that Anthony Albanese has set and the effort that we've put in to genuinely bring people together around our economic challenges has already in some senses paid off because people are having conversations they weren't having four and five and six years ago. They're generally trying to find some common ground and we're not naive about that. You know, not everybody's going to come there and hold hands and agree on everything. It'd be pointless if we already had all the same views about everything. There'll be some contentious stuff. There'll be some stuff that we can't advance. But already the appetite to work together and to come together has been very encouraging and I'm confident, cautiously optimistic, uh, that at the end of the summit that people will agree that it's been worth the effort. Now as soon as the summit's over the budget will loom. Can you give us a flavour of the budget? Is the main purpose to implement the election promises with perhaps a little extra in the way of measures and how tough's the cutting process going to be? Uh, well, it's tough in the sense that it, it requires a lot of work and Katie Gallagher, my, um, my colleague and 
friend has been doing a heap of work to go through the budget line by line with Treasury and Finance to work out where we can responsibly cut things back, particularly when it comes to dealing with that legacy of rorts and waste that we've seen in the budget. So that's part of the task. Another part of the task is providing responsible, affordable cost of living relief where it delivers another economic benefit. So childcare obviously has a benefit for the labour market as well as providing cost of living relief. Medicine cost has a benefit for healthcare but also provides cost of living relief. Getting wages moving is a big part of our cost of living policies as well. And then as you ident rightly identify, we've got a budget for our commitments uh, and also budget for any commitments that might come out of the Jobs and Skills Summit. Uh, and so I think it'll be a very um, workmanlike budget. You know, I think it will be a budget where people know what's coming. Not, not a surprise budget. Well, just in the sense that people know what our priorities are because we just took them to an election. Mm -hmm. And people know what our emphasis is because we've just taken it to a job summit. And so in that regard, I think it'll be very, um, uh, uh, in lots of ways, unsurprising. Uh, but also sitting over the top of it and what unites the summit the budget, the government itself is not just bringing people together around the challenges, but also trying to make our economy more resilient. I think a theme of the budget will be around resilience at the personal level, the community level, and at the national level. The costs and consequences of this decade of needless conflict and division and wasted opportunities and warped priorities has made our economy and our people more vulnerable to these sorts of international shocks and health shocks that we're seeing right now. And so my job as I see it, and our job as a government, is to take a, a community and an economy and a budget which is more vulnerable than it should be and to make it more resilient. And that's why implementing our commitments, providing cost of living relief, trying to get value for money in the budget, dealing with the issues in the labour market, they're also important. Well, talking about cost of living, last week you were asked about uh, bringing childcare forward and you sent out some conflicting messages. <laughs> I didn't mean to, Michelle. Um, can we just clear that up? Is that a possibility? Uh, uh, of course we can, Michelle. And it was a, it was a burst of candour and Patricia Carvelis can do that to you sometimes. You forget that a lot of people are listening. Um, look, the truth is we had a look at it uh, and it's very expensive and there might be operational issues around rushing it. And so we decided against bringing it forward. Good people that we respect, like Jay Weatherall, even this week has called for it to be delivered uh, earlier. We think it will be a game changer for Australian parents. We think a really important policy, almost $5 billion of investment in a key economic reform be delivered in July. It'll be really important when it does. That's not that far away. We had a look at all the alternatives, Anna Lee, Jason Clare and myself, and I think your uh, listeners and subscribers should expect that that policy will be implemented in July. And they should be expecting to pay more for their petrol in September when that runs out? Well, that's the, unfor yeah. that's the unfortunate reality. You're not, you're not moving on that? No, no. And we said that before the election, during the election and after the election. It costs about $3 billion to extend it even for six months. And a budget which is full of all of this uh, debt that we inherited can't carry an expense of that kind. Now, the other issue is uh, pressure to uh, do something in the way of uh, encouraging older people to stay in the workforce by changing pension arrangements. Where are you up to on that? Well, again, I mean, we, we have had a look at this. Uh, we had a look even before the election and subsequently. Um, we're still doing work on it. Um, we, need, we would need to make sure that the cost would be worth it. Uh, it's actually more costly than people assume because a lot of people who are working right now would then qualify for the pension, come onto the pension, and that's where the costly bit is. 
Uh, and we also want to make sure it's effective. We haven't found a lot of evidence so far uh, that people are, um, are targeting that $490 that they can currently earn per fortnight. But we've got a relatively open mind to it. We, we know it will come up at the Jobs and Skills Summit. That's a good thing. And I've got an open mind and I'll certainly listen to people's views. But we need to recognise there's a cost associated with it and we want to make sure we get bang for buck. Just on this point of a well-being assessment, a well-being budget, is this a sort of cost-benefit analysis? It's a bit unclear to me what a well-being budget is, although my colleague Peter Martin has, <laughs> yes. has been erudite on this. He has, yeah. I read everything Peter uh, writes about this. I think the best way to understand what we're trying to do here is to measure what matters in our economy and in our society. We've got all these traditional measures of the economy, which I'm not suggesting for a moment we abandon. But in addition to that, we should get better at measuring uh, environmental outcomes, health outcomes, other things that are crucial to our economy. I think there's been a, an awakening around the world. Other countries are doing this. The OECD's got a system. The Kiwis across the ditch have got a system. And that's what I would like to broaden out the conversation about economic be benefit by measuring what matters in our economy. And so what I'll do in October in the budget, you've uh, read a lot of budgets, Michelle, in your time. You know that there's a thing called Budget Statement 4, and it's always a sort of a forward-looking piece. And I would like to do in bu Budget Statement 4, I'll indicate where I'm headed on well-being and I'm measuring what matters. Uh, and then at some subsequent point, probably next year, uh, we'll release a set of indicators that we want people to engage with. And it's been really quite amazing uh, the level of engagement we've had already on this idea. People have come from everywhere, around the world and around Australia, because they, there is an appetite uh, to, to measure progress differently in our economy. And, and I'm up for that. I'm a believer in that. On the numbers, you will in fact be looking at a, a better starting bottom line than was expected in the Josh Frydenberg budget, right? So will any of the this windfall be used to spend on some things or will it be put to the bottom line? Uh, well, firstly, you're right. I mean, it will be the, out, the budget outcome for last year will be quite substantially better than what was predicted in the pre-election fiscal outlook. And that's for a couple of reasons that we can't count on, unfortunately, going forward. First of all, commodity prices were just through the roof and that delivered a benefit that governments can't take credit for. And secondly, uh, a lot of the spending that was promised by our predecessors, they didn't get it out the door. So it, it, it wasn't spent in that year. And so that's improved the budget bottom line for that year, but put pressure on subsequent years. And so uh, I don't necessarily see that in terms of do we bank that or do we spend it for the sake of spending it. But there are a lot of spending pressures which weren't budgeted for uh, when government changed hands. A lot of the pandemic spending that we've had to do in Mark Butler's portfolio uh, has been necessary but not budgeted for by our predecessors. So inevitably some of that improvement will go towards some of this unavoidable spending. Just finally, we're having a, a debate now, quite an intense debate about whether the stage three tax cuts should be uh, reworked or scrapped or kept. Now, Anthony Albanese has uh, recommitted to them. But can I just ask you what how do you see these in terms of a burden on the budget? They're going to cost a great deal over a decade. How would you characterise them in terms of their impact, positively and negatively, I guess? Well, I, mean, I think it's self-evident that they're, they're very expensive. 
for the budget. I think that's been known throughout, uh, but our position on them hasn't changed. And it's important to remember uh, that even if a government were to tweak those stage three tax cuts, it wouldn't happen for, like they don't come in for another couple of years. So they have absolutely no bearing on some of these challenges that we're dealing with right now. So we haven't changed our position on those tax cuts. We've said that our priority in tax reform is multinational taxes. Uh, and we've got a full agenda in the nearer term, particularly around some of these labour market issues that have motivated the Jobs and Skills Summit. So that's our priority. That's what the government's working on. We haven't changed our position on stage three. The opposition, then opposition, criticised them at the time, of course, quite strongly while, while voting for them in, in the end. Do you see them as having any positive economic uh, implications as well as the, the negative ones for the budget? Yeah, I think it's important to remember uh, that these tax cuts kick in at $45,000. And so for a lot of Australians with quite modest incomes, they would be getting a, an additional tax cut in stage three, and we shouldn't lightly dismiss that. Uh, people are focused for understandable reasons on other parts of the income scale, but we shouldn't forget that they kick in at $45,000. Uh, and so obviously, you know, if you can provide tax relief to people on that sort of, those sorts of incomes, uh, middle incomes, and if you can afford to do so, then, then that obviously has uh, a potential uh, economic benefit. But again, you know, nothing that um, uh, people are proposing to do with Stage 3 uh, would alter uh, the fundamentals of the budget over the next couple of years, the inflation challenge that we're dealing with right now, the issues with wages, and so the government's focused on that, and we haven't changed our position on the tax So cuts. they'll definitely stay LAW? Well, that's the commitment that we made before the election. Uh, we were serious when we made that commitment, and we haven't changed it subsequently. Jim Chalmers, thank you very much for talking with us today during a, a very busy week for you. That's uh, all for our podcast for now. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett, and we'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.